Today we're actually concluding a sermon series, Why We Believe. And we've been going through this for the last couple months and we're ending that series today. Looking forward to actually starting a new series next week. You saw it on the announcement video where um, we're going through the book of, of Proverbs and hitting some things in, in Proverbs. Really excited for that. It'll be a five-week series next week talking about our companions and walking with wise people in our life um, and, and allowing um, people who are godly, people who have wisdom um, to speak into our life and then vice versa, being the right and godly example. Looking forward to the series in the book of Proverbs. But today we're concluding our series on why we believe, why we believe. And today we're talking about the resurrection. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul puts it just very bluntly. He says, look, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what we're doing is a waste of time. In fact, he says, we're of all men most miserable, most to be pitied if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so there's really, really powerful implications. This is something that is really important for us to dive into and find out if, I mean, is it true? Is the claim true that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if he did rise from the dead, it's more implications than just what is in this life. But that means there's a final judgment that's to come. And there's eternal life. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're wasting our time. But Paul concludes, he says, that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye've believed in vain. Now, this next part is really, really important because the wording here the wording here is what, what really all scholars agree on that Paul is now quoting from a creed, from an uh, early church creed. So this didn't originate with Paul. Paul is quoting what was already been in circulation. And he's going to quote this. He says, for verse number three, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the 12. And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. That some are falling asleep, but the greater part remains. So just the wording here, it's much like in the Gospels where it's just almost like the authors are saying, we dare you, fact check us. These things can be verified, what they're writing. And, and again, we're going to talk about how that the, these writings were early on, so it wasn't like this legend that just developed. But the people that were eyewitness of these things were still alive. So that's not how a legend works, right? A legend is something that's made up and nothing can really be verified from it. Well, that's not the wording here in Corinthians. So he says, look, that some are still alive or that some have passed away, but the greater they're alive and present. And after that, he was seen of James, then of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. 
for I am the least of the apostles. And that I'm not me to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So now he's reminiscing about his own testimony. How that Paul, Paul at one point in his life was, was persecuting believers in Christ. He was persecuting Saul of Tarsus. He was the one that would travel around and gather up the Christians and imprison them and beat them and kill them. And, but, but, now, but now he's had this radical transformation on the road to Damascus to actually persecute believers. He's knocked off from his horse and this bright light blinds him and he hears the, the, the voice of Christ and he's converted, becomes a believer. Now he's preaching Christ. And he says in verse 10, it's the grace of God that I am what I am. Verse number 11, he says, therefore, whether I, it were I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Now, verse 12, he says, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there's no resurrection of the dead? Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised is it risen? And if Christ be not risen, your preaching is in vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, we're found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ. But he's saying, look, if he, if he didn't raise him up then, and Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we're false witnesses of this. He says, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. And he says, ye are yet in your sins. You're yet in your sins. And he says, and those which have fallen asleep or those which have died in Christ, they've perished too. In other words, those that, the, the, the believers that have already passed away, it's done. Forget it. That's the end. If Christ didn't rise from the dead. And he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable or most to be pitied. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, so man... By man also came the resurrection of the dead. The first man, Adam, brought death and sin. But Jesus, the perfect man, the second Adam, brought life. And he says, for an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So as I mentioned, a lot hinges on the resurrection of Christ. I mean, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is indeed just a house of cards that crumbles if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But the question is this, is there any good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Or are we as believers, what some would accuse us of, are we just, are we just participating in what's called confirmation bias? Where it's like the only reason we believe it is because people that, that we listen to, that we want to believe, are really the only ones we're, we're listening to. And we're ignoring all of this evidence that's out there that's contradictory contradictory to that but we just you know we we shut our eyes to it because we don't want to hear it and believe it. is that true well i would say certainly not certainly not i think as believers and again it's more than just an intellectual debate it's more than just intellectual head knowledge to be a believer it's a work of the holy spirit of god speaking on the inside raising up a dead sinner to new life in christ but what we're saying is that that's not, it's not in spite of the evidence, that there is historical, good historical evidence to believe Jesus rose from the dead. I want to look at just a little bit of that and then conclude with what that means then for us if Jesus did rise from the dead. But let me give you a couple things to consider and think about. Why do we believe Jesus rose from the dead? I think a very powerful thing is this, that there were early and multiple sources that attest to this. Early and multiple sources. And why that's important is this, because if, if it was legendary, because again, a lot of times 
skeptics and atheists say, well, you Christians, you build the straw man argument and then knock it down and, and, and you're, not even, you're not even representing our arguments. When we say things like Jesus was either a, a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord, right? You've heard that and we've said that, I've said that. But they say, no, 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 we don't, we're, not, we're not proposing any of those. We're saying it was simply legend. It's not that a bunch of Christians were deliberately lying. It's just the story got bigger and bigger. And pretty soon we ended up with, oh, somebody came back from the dead. Well, the problem with that is this, that we have multiple sources, but the sources are early. There wasn't time for legendary tale to develop. And the reason I say that is this, we have the, the account of the gospels. And before someone says, well, the gospels, of course, but that's because that's the Bible. You're just quoting the Bible. Yeah, well, I mean, the, these books weren't always composed together, you know, under a, a leather cover that said Holy Bible. I mean, these are historical documents from eyewitness accounts. And the thing is, about 150, 200 years ago, the, the majority of scholarship would have said, well, Though the, the New Testament documents, man, they're definitely not from the first century, probably from the second century, maybe even older than that. Well, then along comes a whole lot more evidence, and, and that's actually, we, we have good evidence to say they're, they're, they're very early on, within decades of the events. They were interviewing eyewitnesses. First Corinthians here, and, and by the way, not only, not only believers, right? I mean, there's actually historians outside of scripture that attest to certain things about that Jesus lived, that Jesus was a, re a real person, that he died under Pontius Pilate and, and that, he, uh, that his believers thought he rose from the dead. And they don't follow it all the way to the, to the conclusion and, and believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But, but all scholarship agrees on what's called the minimal facts on, on some of those things where it would only be, I mean, you would have to take the absolute most radical version of skepticism to try to deny that Jesus existed, that he died under the Romans, under the hand of Pontius Pilate, and that his disciples were radically changed and, and believed the tomb to be empty. I mean, I would propose this, that if you were to go down that road of radical skepticism, you would not be able to believe anything in history. Because there's a lot of good sources and multiple sources and early sources that say different. Let me just give you one example. We could talk about this for a, for a long, long time. Let me give you one thing and we'll move on to the next point. First Corinthians here. This was written in about 60 AD. But when Paul, his wording here in verse 3, and by the way, this is something that pretty much it's unanimous. Not completely you know, there's always somebody out there that you can find that would disagree, but it's, it's almost unanimous in scholarship that they believe that Paul here is quoting an early church creed. So this would go back before the, the 60 AD. This would go back. In fact, you can trace it back to a Jerusalem source within about five to seven years of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This was already in circulation. Paul's quoting this early church creed, and what they would do is it would be, be passed down like an oral tradition, and they would say it a certain way um, so they wouldn't forget it. And that's what Paul is quoting here. This goes back within just a few years of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And he says, I've delivered unto you first of all, all that which I also received, 
how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So again, this is really, really important. We have multiple sources and we have early sources. In fact, we have more earlier sources and more sources than any other ancient work of antiquity. And I would say this, that's pretty significant in looking at all the other things building up. That's pretty significant that we have all of that available today, but not just multiple and early sources. Here's another, I think, really important reason that we have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's that his early followers, they suffered greatly for their faith and they never recanted. They never recanted. I mean, they were willing to lay their life down. And at times, at times like Peter, for example, I talked about this on the Good Friday service a little bit and, and even more so about a month ago when we were in this same series, we talked about why we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We highlighted this a little bit where Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, when Jesus was arrested, remember Peter denies him, he runs. And like, can you blame him? Like he's probably thinking, man, they're, they're coming after me next. But, but Peter denies Jesus. He denies him to get out of danger. But after the resurrection, Peter is going to proclaim Jesus when it puts him in danger. So if they're making this up, they're making up a story that they're not benefiting from. It's actually, they'd be making up a story, putting him in harm's way. Peter denies Jesus. He denies him three times. He says, I don't believe. And then he said, I never believed. But after the resurrection, Peter went on never, ever to deny him again. And in fact, there's really good first century evidence that Peter died a martyr's death. We kind of hold on to the tradition that Peter was crucified upside down. Maybe we don't know that for certain, but we do know, we do know without a reasonable doubt that Peter died a martyr's death. And the question is, why would Peter go from denying him to get out of danger to now walking into danger to preach and proclaim Christ? I think that's pretty significant. How about, how about Jesus' own half-brother, James? So there's a first century historian, Josephus. Did I mention Josephus already? So Josephus wasn't a believer. He was a Roman Jewish historian in the first century. Josephus wrote about James, the Lord's brother, being martyred. Well, what's significant about that is James wasn't always a believer. There was a time when James said, to Jesus, stop saying those things. People think you're crazy. Stop saying those things. And James went on after the resurrection to saying those things, even when it cost him his life. Josephus writes about how James was thrown off of a building and then clubbed to death because of what he was preaching, because of his faith in Christ. And that is so significant, really for two reasons. One, I think it gives us credibility. It gives us a good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead because these were eyewitnesses that were willing to die for it. But not only that, this also is a very, I think a very practical application to where you and I live. Because the reality of it is this, that a lot of people have attached their faith to a make-believe God who never lets bad things happen to people. They have, they have so attached their faith to a God who doesn't let evil and doesn't let bad things happen. And so when they see the evil in this world, and then when it becomes personal and they go through devastating times, their conclusion is they walk away from faith. 
But that's not the perspective of Christ's early followers. They actually saw the worst thing imaginable, a death on a Roman cross, happen to the best person that they had ever known. But that didn't cause them to walk away from their faith. Why? Because they attached it to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think that that's significant. And I think it's important for us to recognize that, look, we saw the worst thing when we look back and we, we read these accounts in the Gospels. The absolute worst thing happened to the only true innocent person. And God pulls back the curtain and shows us the glory and the goodness that came, the redemptive story of mankind that came out of the most horrific evil. And what that does is it gives us confidence when we go through pain and we see evil and we see suffering and we can have faith knowing this, that on a greater scale, we saw the glory and the good that came out of suffering, that we can have faith in our personal trials and trauma and tragedy in life and recognize that God can take the most evil, horrific circumstances. And I'm not saying that God made people do evil or wanted people to do evil. I'm simply saying this, that God is sovereign and in control over all and that he can take even the most horrific evil and use it for his good and use it for his glory. His followers suffered greatly, but nowhere do you find anywhere that they ever recanted and changed their story. That's significant. But not only that, we see the radical change in Paul. Remember I said, Paul, he was one that persecuted. He was one that persecuted the, the church. He hated Christianity. He did it all in the name of religion, but, but he hated these Christians. But then there's this radical transformation. That's something else that there's almost a unanimous agreement amongst ancient scholars that the apostle Paul existed and that there was a radical transformation. Now, there's a whole nother debate on that Paul didn't actually write some of the books that we think that he wrote. Again, that's a whole nother discussion and it probably put most of us to sleep going down that road. But here's something that's important. There is pretty much unanimous agreement that he wrote 1 Corinthians. And scholars agree, look, there was this radical change in the apostle Paul. And Paul says it's, it's because of this transformation that he found in Christ. Not only that, there's two more and then, and then we'll come to the conclusion of the sermon. But there's something that's called embarrassing details. It's what apologists uh, Sean McDowell and others, they talk about how that in the account of the, of the, the gospel, the writers of the gospels, they're, they're honest to a fault. Means it just, it rings of authenticity that it wasn't just made up because they're honest about even the low points for them. I mean, the fact that the disciples ran and were scared, the fact of even some of the details of Peter's denial, the fact that women discovered the, the empty tomb. And I know the pushback from the skeptics. Well, women, you guys say women's testimonies weren't permissible in court of law in that time. And actually they were, yeah, like on a couple really, really rare occasions. But for the most part, again, I'm not saying that's how it should be. It was the culture in that time. They didn't give much credibility to a woman's testimony. So why would they, why, if they're making it up, why would they have the women be the ones that discovered the empty tomb? Again, I'm not saying therefore everything's true because of that, but, the, but it rings of authenticity because of the embarrassing details that were given. I'll give you one more and we'll be concluded with the first half of the sermon. But the church experienced an exploding 
an explosion of growth after Christ's death. After Christ's death. So, well, why is that significant? Well, here's why it's significant. Because you have not heard of these names. And I'm going to read them. And I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, which just proves my point that none of us know who these dudes are. Judas the Galilean. All right, that one's an easy one. Thotis, Athrongus, Manahem, Jonathan the Weaver, Andreas of Lacuus, Simon of Perea, Simon of Gioris, Dosithios the Samaritan, Osethenus the Samaritan. These are people you've never heard of. But why have you never heard of them? But everyone in here has heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Why is that? You've never heard of these men. Why not? They were contemporaries of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. Many of them died under the hands of Rome. But you know why that we haven't heard of them? You know why they're nothing more but a footnote in history? Because they died. And so did their following. But what's significant? Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, who his followers claimed he was the Messiah. He died and the church exploded. And now today, a couple billion people call him their savior. And I would say that, that that's very significant. I would propose this. The reason why the church exploded the way it did was, yes, when Christ, when Christ died and was buried and rose again and then ascended into heaven. And then the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost and empowered the church. Yes, and it was because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, sure, there's other religions that have big followings. But what's fundamentally different is this, that with Christianity, it spread primarily from proclaiming the gospel. You look at something like Islam. Yes, it spread rapidly and quickly centuries later, but it spread primarily from force, from the sword, convert or die. And that's a fundamental difference. The church exploded. Why? Because his followers were in, in empowered by the spirit, they had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I would say this, look, there's a lot of good evidence and good reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But it's far more than just an intellectual battle. It's more than just historical evidence versus the, the, the rebuttals of the historical evidence. Look, what saves us, what makes us, what, what, what gives us a what gives us a righteous standing before a holy God is when the Holy Spirit of God gives us that new life. When we by faith trust that Jesus is who we claim to be. When we believe that Jesus died and it's personal, he died for my sin. He died for your sin. And he rose again from the dead. And that is what gives us the hope that we find anchored in the resurrection. So what is this, what is the resurrection? What hope does it gives us? We'll conclude with just a few things that the resurrection gives us. And no, number one, it gives us this, a hope of being reunited with our loved ones who are in Christ. Now you might think, well, that's kind of an odd first point. Like wh why, why are you giving us that point? Well, I'm actually copying the apostle Paul. In another letter, Paul's writing to a different church, the church at Thessalonica. And the context that he's writing is, they're confused, they're hurt, they're fearful. They've got a lot of questions about their loved ones who've died. And Paul says this, he says, look, 
you don't have to sorrow like those who don't have hope because you have a hope. You have hope. And he's saying that those who have fallen asleep, it just is a, a way of saying those who have died, he says they're going to be resurrected. Christ is going to bring them, again, now we know for a believer, the Bible teaches that to be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord. The body and the soul are so knitly joined together, but at death, there is a temporary separation. What does that look like exactly? We, we're content to say we don't know, right? The Bible gives us some implication of maybe what's going on in heaven now. Those who have died in Christ, who are in the presence of Christ now. And we don't know exactly, but we do know this, that there's a promise that we will have a resurrected body. And, and Paul's saying, look, those that have died and have gone on, and, and it, look, you have a, a, a hope. And it's anchored in the fact that they're going to be raised again. There's a reunion that waits, and he anchors it all in this, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He says that, that Christ, he is the first fruits of those that have died. That because Jesus rose from the dead, those who were in Christ will also be raised from the dead. And that gives us hope. Because some of you, even recently, you've lost someone that you love dearly. Some of you have lost someone that you love dearly, and it hasn't been recent, but it seems like it's recent. Because you miss them. And maybe sometimes you find yourself, you can cope well with it and, and do fine. And then it just, that grief, that wave of grief just hits you of missing someone. A loved one, maybe a parent, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter. And maybe that grief just can get overwhelming at times. And look, this isn't just some wishful thinking. This is, we can anchor our hope in the fact that, that those who are in Christ, that we'll be with them again. Ultimately, it's the promise of being with our Savior, being in the presence of Jesus but Paul encourages, he says, look, comfort each other with those words. The resurrection of Jesus, it gives us hope that we'll be reunited one day with those who have died who are in Christ. Maybe today as you gather for a meal this, this afternoon, if I ever get done preaching, or tonight, whenever you gather together, maybe there's going to be someone that's, that's missing that would normally be with you. Maybe this is the first year they're not there. But we have a hope as believers. We have a hope of being reunited. We have a hope that our own death isn't final. That our own death isn't final. Look, we live in a, a, die, a, in, in a world that's, just, that's dying. It's under the curse of sin. Sin's affected everything in our world. And many times we live with this mentality that, that we're in the land of the living and we're all headed to the land of the dying. But you know what the reality is for believers in Christ? We're in the land of the dying. We're headed to the land of the living. That this life isn't it. This life isn't all that there is. That this life in compared to eternity is just a moment. It's just a moment. Maybe you're here honestly and you're feeling the effects of living in a fallen sin-cursed world. And every day you're reminded, as morbid as this sounds... You're reminded you're one day closer to death. And maybe we're reminded even more clearly because this body has a lot of aches and pains. And you know what you find? The older you get, the more noticeable that is. 
Look, I, look, I'm not old. I'm 37. But for those of you that are like super young, like you people in your 20s, 37 sounds old, doesn't it? But for those of you that are older than 37, oh man, you're just a kid. 37's young. But you know what I find at 37? It's like, man, like I ache and, and have more pains than I realized. I don't recover as quickly from things. Well, you know, you work out or exercise or just lift something heavy. You're like, oh man, like I'm sore from lifting something two days ago. And it's like, wow, the reality starts to settle in that we're in a fallen world and that our bodies aren't getting younger. And the reality is this, look, there's more than just this life. I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. My wife and I actually had COVID and, um, and we're all recovered and got the antibodies, so don't worry. We're not, we're not going to spread it to you. We're good. But when we had it, we had, it was pretty mild symptoms for the most part, thank God. Um, but one of the symptoms that we got is what a lot of people get, and we, we, we had a loss of taste and smell. Now, for, for, for me, it was only a week, and I thank God for that, because that was getting depressing. Like, like, I'm a foodie. I like to eat. And that was depressing. Like, man, am I ever going to taste food again? And then, and then some people not so helpful were like, yeah, I lost mine for a month. And I'm like, oh, man, this is horrible. But you know what? I found this, that like after about a week, I could enjoy food again. But it was a little more gradual. When I first was able to start tasting food and enjoying, enjoying it again, like, you know, I, I tasted it, but it was like, it, it wasn't quite like as, as just satisfying and, and fulfilling. You, I mean, it still tasted good, but it was like it, it wasn't quite what we knew and remembered it was. Well, here's something. And maybe some of this is speculation, but I think I could make a biblical case for it. Look, we're in a fallen, sinful world. Even when we are completely, you know, full strength, still, we live in a fallen world. And imagine like in heaven, because we know there's going to be food in the new heaven and the new earth. Amen. There's going to be food there, which is exciting for people like me. But, but imagine like what that food will taste like when we're in a perfected body. You know, again, some of this is speculation. I wonder what maybe senses we'll have that we don't even have now. Again, that's not what's going to make it heaven, but it's just kind of fun to think about. The point is this. The point is this, that look, we, we live in a fallen, dying world. I like what Pastor Tim Keller said, that I, I saw this quote a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote it down. I thought it'd be very applicable. He said, while other worldviews, they lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the sorrow. See, in other worldviews, that we sit in the midst of joy, but we're foreseeing coming sorrow. But Christianity empowers us. To sit in the midst of this world's sorrow, tasting the joy that is coming. Look, that doesn't mean we live depressed and discouraged, right? And just like huddle around and isolate until, until we die. No, we can actually live life to the fullest and enjoy life to the fullest. Because we know that this life isn't it. There is more to come. And that's why... It's such a serious thing when we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because there's great implications for those who believe and for those who don't. We have the hope of being reunited. We have the hope that death isn't final. We have the hope 
that this life has meaning and purpose. Paul closes out this, this uh, chapter 15. And look, I'm super pumped because after this proverb series that we're going to do, we're going to go verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, it's going to take us a while to get to chapter 15, all right? But we will get to it. And in 15, Paul like highlights a little bit about what that resurrected body is going to be like. And it's fascinating. This whole chapter is extremely fascinating. But he closes out the chapter and he says this. You can be steadfast. I, I love how he, how he words this. He says in Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, right? Because of these things. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He said, look, because of this, because Jesus rose from the dead, it means this, that our life has a meaning and a purpose and it's not wasted in nothing, even the pain and the suffering and the unpleasant things. It's not random. It's not purposeless. It's not meaningless. All of it has a purpose and we can be bold and steadfast. That we can face difficult times and face opposition no matter what might come. And we can face it with steadfastness because Jesus rose from the dead. It means this, that, that what we do in this life actually matters. And I'm not saying that in, in the sense of like we have to earn or achieve our salvation. That was accomplished by Christ. Finish work on the cross. Amen. We're justified by faith alone. But but what we do for Christ, it matters. The relationships we build with the people around us, they matter for more than just this life. What we do for Christ and for his kingdom, it has eternal value. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a hope that life has true meaning and it has true purpose. And then in conclusion, we have a hope that our sins are forgiven. I know I've said in conclusion several times, which means nothing. I'm kidding. I'm concluding. We have a hope that our sins are forgiven. Because Paul said this, look, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, you're in your sins. You're in your sins. But because Christ raised from the dead, because he died the sacrificial death that we deserved, we talked about it, our Good Friday service, the, the sacrificial, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, he died in our place. And because he rose from the dead, showing that he had power over sin, over death, showing that the father was satisfied with the payment. It means this, that we can have a hope that our sins are forgiven. That all who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ will find forgiveness. See, Jesus Christ, he took of the cup of God's wrath without mercy. So you and I can take of the cup of mercy without wrath because Jesus Christ took our place. He took our sin upon himself. He nailed it to the cross. And then when he was buried, it was signified of a, of a ritual in the book of Leviticus where they would take two goats. They would kill the one goat as a sacrifice. The other goat, they would put some kind of mud or blemish or dirt on and the priest would lead it away into the wilderness showing this, that when Christ was buried, he took our sin with him and buried it, meaning that our sin can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And we have that hope today. But here's the thing, that's not true of everyone. It's not true of everyone. 
It's only for those who know Jesus Christ and who are in him, who have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. And if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't personally put your trust in Christ. And see, that's why I said, look, the, about the resurrection of Christ, it's more than just this intellectual debate and, and, and challenge. It's, yes, again, I, I think that the evidence is overwhelming, but it's more than just a, examining evidence. It's actually a heart that must believe that the Holy Spirit of God must convict and bring to salvation. So I ask you this, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Maybe you're depending upon some maybe religious activities or, or, or things in the past of, of just a performance-based religion of going to church or doing certain things. And honestly, you haven't put your faith completely in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What better day than today? Resurrection Sunday, April 4th, 2021, the, the surrender and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you don't know Christ, put your faith in him. If you're here and you're a believer, you know Christ. Look, you have a... You have a hope that's anchored in him. We have a hope and we can know that our life has meaning. Our life has purpose.